0: Hi and welcome to Global Governance Futures based out of the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance this week it's really our pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Jim Rutt Jim is the host of the Jim Rutt show podcast series which is an incredible resource for cutting-edge thinking from science to tech culture to history ecology and even indigenous wisdom The former chairman of the renowned Santa Fe Institute, and before that a key player in several tech companies, Jim brings a deep understanding of complexity science, systems thinking, human cognition, and a range of other insights to real-world problems. He's probably best known in the podosphere for his leading role in the Game B community, which we're going to get into today. Launched in 2013, Jim and other Game B luminaries, who have featured in early episodes, including Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and Forrest Landry, have focused their attention on realising a new operating system for society, based upon the conviction that the current system is unsustainable and probably self-terminating. Jim's published a number of articles on Game B and related themes, which we'll include in the show notes. But this is emphatically not an academic exercise for Jim. In his own words, it is not an excuse for blobiating, but very much a call to action with a lively and growing presence across social media platforms and a number of prototype game B initiatives underway, or what he calls proto Jim's also known for his straight-talking approach and iconoclastic style, especially when it comes to what he calls naive Newtonianism, as well as Game A neoliberalism, which he argues is a game which is out of control and driving us over a cliff. So it's really great to have you with us here, Jim, today. Ah, great to be here. Uh, yeah, he's got, you've obviously uh, done some work and dug in, so further, I'm happy to take it further. Great. Okay. Well, before we dive in, I'll just invite the pod crew to say hello.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Sam. Uh, I do the audio and video editing, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Jim today.
2: Hi, I'm Zoe. I help with the logistics for the podcast, and I'm super interested to hear what, where the conversation is going to go today.
0: All right. Let's get into it. So I guess first, what is Game B and what is it not? What is not? All right. Well, the the key thing is that Game B
3: is not Game A. It's uh, the alternative, we think. Uh, So then you say, well, what is Game A? So uh, in our view, Game A is the status quo uh, social, political, economic operating system of at least the West and to a substantial degree uh, currently the world. Uh, So what we are immodestly proposing is a new socioeconomic political operating system for the world, or at least for the West. Uh, In my own uh, framing, uh, and by the way, Game B is famously uh, uh, unconsolidated. The various thinkers feel free to think their own thoughts. The community is thousands of people. Uh, None none of them believe the exact same set of things. So always keep in mind that when you hear someone talk about Game B, uh, it's a a lens into a kind of a broth of ideas. But at least my take on it and where I'm focusing these days in my thinking and analysis and my writing uh, is that uh, it's kind of helpful to think of the current form of game B starting, uh, game A that is, uh, starting around 1700 in, in the UK and to some degree in the Netherlands. Uh, and I think of three things that uh, are the basis and then quickly a fourth. Then those three things uh, were uh, the invention of modern science, uh, which I would say was fully realized with the work of Newton uh, and Boyle and some of the other uh, folks in the uh, 17th century. Uh, the uh, glorious revolution in the UK, 1688, uh, where for the first time in a major country, at least uh, there was a principled challenge to the divine right of Kings and, uh, and, and finally something like the uh, uh, beginnings of democracy uh, were were put in place. Uh, And then uh, one I focus on a fair amount is the, uh, uh, the frozen accident of the founding of the Bank of England in 1694, uh, which for very peculiar reasons, the king needed a loan. And some guys said, well, we'll give you a loan if you give us the right to set up a bank, uh, essentially, is the root of our current financial system is that founding. Uh, and those three things uh uh, I, I believe are uh, what, what has powered uh, the human uh, race to this unbelievable great transition that it's made in 1700. Uh, if, you know, if you go back and look at the data, uh, what the world's population was, the standard of living, the energy consumption, uh, it was, we were amazingly poor in 1700, not much uh, more affluent than we were in uh you know, a thousand BC, truthfully, a uh, little bit. There'd been very slow growth. Uh, there have been some fallbacks in Europe, particularly during the Dark Ages. Uh, by 1700, there'd been uh, a few hundred years of ver- of slow growth since after the Black Death, but it's still been on this long, slow thing, and people could live and die in a world that was quite similar. Starting around 1700, uh, there was uh, the beginnings of a takeoff, and so the fourth piece uh, that had also been slowly accumulating uh, in the late uh, medieval period uh, was technology. But in the, in the 18th century, technology really started to roll with uh, you know, the well-known uh, development of uh, the textile industry in the North of England. Uh, coal, which had already been started to be used in the 17th century uh, for heating, uh, was became much more extensive and England actually uh, passed England and Wales actually passed 50% of their energy consumption came from coal uh, during the 18th century. Uh, We had the steam engine, and then the steam engine uh, became truly practical with watts uh, extensions to it. And so late in the 18th century and then uh, rapidly into the early 19th century, uh, the world started getting... uh, much more powerful humanity relative to nature uh, really started to flex its muscles, particularly in energy, you know, prior to uh, you know, the, the be able to transfer to the thermal energy of coal to work through the steam engine, uh, the limits of human power in the world had basically been human muscle, animal muscle uh, and wind and to a lesser degree water. Uh, and it was tiny, uh, on the scale of the earth, and the amount of damage we could do the, to the earth was relatively limited. At the same time, the amount of wealth we could create and the standard of living we, we could create was also pretty limited. Uh, but from that point forward, uh, you, know, you take this uh, very interesting combination of uh, you know, free market finance, science and technology, and uh, call it rising individualism uh, you know, is manifested through democracy, but also other things, uh, turned turned out to be the perfect set of ingredients uh, for humanity to truly take off. And it did. And, you know, uh, there are some people in the Game B movement who go, oh, bad, bad, Game A. I say, no. Game A was a necessary, or it was actually a good thing for humanity. Uh, it blasted us out of uh, 10,000 years of uh empire and uh, near starvation since the invention of agriculture uh and took us to where we are uh today where we have you know, the power of gods, if not the wisdom. Now, here's the problem. You go with it. This all sounds good, right? We are, uh, you know, orders of magnitude, probably two orders of magnitude, more energy intensive in our lives. You know, we have air conditioning, we have computers, we got little phones more powerful than the, than the computer on the Apollo mission, uh, etc. You know, we can have blueberries uh, in February in the Northern Hemisphere. How'd that happen, right? Uh, all through the magic of game A. But the problem with, game A is this this exponential takeoff machine with no brakes. It has no brakes. Everything about it is fundamentally designed to go as fast as it can and faster and faster and faster, uh, driven by the inner logic of money on money return. Uh, If you look at uh, all the manifestations of things that actually drive the growth, it's that uh, everyone's looking to make more money, and the best way to make more money is to grow exponentially, right? Uh, and oh, by the way, our financial system, uh, because it uses uh, debt money and uh, and fractional reserve banking, essentially, it's caught on a treadmill. That if it doesn't, if the economy doesn't grow exponentially, the whole damn house of cards collapse. So the whole thing is based on uh, positive feedback loops that just keep driving the. Uh, the accelerator uh, faster and faster. And as again, 1700, man was small, Earth was large. Uh, it was a good thing to enter this uh, exponential growth curve for three centuries. But probably around 1960, 1970, uh, we should have realized, and a few people did. Uh, you know, the most famous ones, probably Rachel Carlson with her book Silent Spring and some of the other very early uh, proto-environmentalists were starting to smell that something wasn't right here. You know, you can't uh, grow to, you can't, trees can't grow to the sky and humanity uh, is on the verge of growing to the sky. And yet game A had no way to transition, still has no way to really transition uh, to a way of life that's, congruent with the limits of earth. So I think that's, you know, that is sort of the fundamental imperative. And then uh, since we have uh, gone down this road and thought about it, we realized a bunch of other things is that uh, while we are materially rich, uh, are we rich in spirit and in culture and in society? Uh, You know, when you look at uh, particularly young folks, uh, millennials, Uh, especially those uh, who are parents with young children, Uh, you know, the game is just stacked against them. Uh, Housing costs are crazy. Uh, At least in the U S schools are very, very highly. And if you don't, if you're not buying your house in a very, very expensive, renting in a very expensive neighborhood, schools probably suck. Uh, You know, your kids chances of being sucked into uh, you know, mental health issues around social media cyberbullying uh stories i'm reading of uh you know the uh sort of uh, particularly young women uh having to groom their presentation on instagram and that is their life uh and i go what the fuck is that right hope i'm allowed to say fuck by the way is that okay everything goes all right. Yeah, so, you know the. Uh, you know, I, I suppose I could operate without it, but uh, it would be difficult, right? Uh, and you know, it, is the culture we're building actually a good one for humans? And it's our view. The answer is not really, right? And again, this because it's not built to be good for humans. It's built to maximize money on money return. Uh, so uh, that, in a nutshell, is what Game B is uh, at the highest level of abstraction.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks, Jim. We're definitely going to get more into the weeds on various strands that you you sort of laid out there. I would be curious to ask, I mean, so you, I think it's really important to put Game B in historical context, which you've done really neatly, and how that historical evolutionary process has produced these kinds of unprecedented system dynamics at a global scale that we now observe. Um, I I was wondering... Is the, the name choice of game A, game B a reference to sort of the very materialist, economistic game theory and the kind of default failure modes that we might associate with game theory around game theoretic constraints that, that uh, animate a lot of the strategic interaction within our economy and indeed perhaps in our social world more broadly? Now, I will say we didn't choose the name for that, uh,
3: but at the time the name was chosen, uh, which was almost was sort of accidental, uh, we were deep in discussions about the game theoretic traps in which Game A is caught in. Right, uh, you know the famous one, the real easy one to understand is the race to the bottom, uh, where you imagine a series of, let's say, an industry of people making some form of packaged food, let's say, uh, and it's they're building nice, good, healthy food at a you know, and, and competing, and their market share varies from year to year on who does a better job and this and that. But then uh, one of the companies uh, decides to. Uh, Make a bad move, which is to you know, uh, which they they, some of them actually did, which is to massively increase the amount of sugar in their food products, and particularly to use high uh, fructose corn syrup, uh, which is less expensive than all other sweeteners. Well, guess what? Uh, That makes their processed food more attractive to the consumer and less expensive to make. And so we are now in a race to the bottom trap where, let's say, the other three major players in the industry, if they don't respond, they're going to lose market share, lose money, stock price goes down, CEO gets fired, and all kinds of dire things happen. And so what happens is those uh, companies, because everything is denominated, in money on money return, are essentially forced, even if they don't want to, into a race to the bottom to follow this uh, this uh, bad actor. I think you can say the same things happen in popular culture. Uh, you know, and every category you can think of. All it takes is one person to find a profitable but antisocial niche, and everybody else in the uh, uh, in the niche. Is more or less forced to follow them or lose the game of Game A of money. So, uh, in that sense, we were very well aware of this. We talk about this uh, talked talk about this a lot. So, it's probably not an entirely an accident uh, that we came up with uh, with Game B because uh, you know building systems that avoid game theoretical traps has got to be near near the center of uh, the design of Game B.
1: Um, Jim, I was wondering. You said that Game A was a kind of necessary step in our development but there might be some groups that haven't finished game a yet or and what's the argument for moving over to game b and and a kind of follow-up to that would be can you ever finish game a or is it you know you choose to you're, you're sick of it and you move over
3: that's a great question. I just uh, just finished reading this week and Vaclav Smil's most recent book about you know how the uh, modern world evolved, and uh, and he makes a very good point that across the world people are at, people are at all different levels of uh, development. Uh, you know there are people, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, who are still living uh, you know not much different, you know not much better than Europeans were in 1700. And any transition on a global basis uh, uh, really does need to allow those people to catch up. Uh, and this has been you know, a game B thesis all along that uh, what we really are thinking about in terms of a target uh, is a, uh, a way of life for everybody on earth that's approximately similar in, in terms of its uh, burden on the earth, uh, as the as essentially the intermediate destination, call it by the end of the of this century, uh, where the people who are well below that point have an opportunity to rise and those of us who are already uh, well over that point uh, need to find a way to, Uh, build down so that we can actually have a carrying capacity of an earth uh, with something between 8 and 10 billion people uh, that is sustainable within the various uh, ecosystem services uh, that we have and, and congruent with the technology that we have. Uh, and I will say that one of the things you've, you know, you've asked in some of the notes you sent me was what is game B not? It's uh, not about hippies and mud huts, right? It's, uh, uh, it's about having a good, rich, uh, forward, developing civilization uh, that combines uh, the limits of ecosystem services, i.e. what can Earth uh, provide and tolerate. Uh, what is good for humans as humans and technology, right? If someday we do find a magic uh, energy technology, uh, you know, maybe fusion finally works, or someone figures out zero point energy, or uh, we find some way to cost effectively beam microwave energy down from op- from orbiting solar cells. Maybe we can uh, ratchet it up our energy intensity again. Uh, But for now, uh, the West needs to ratchet down and the rest of the world needs to come up. Uh, Smills' uh, guesstimate was uh, uh, U.S. needs to cut its energy intensity of its way of life by about two-thirds, something like that. Uh, Europe by maybe 40 or 50 percent. and, uh, you know, in the places like China are probably also already over the line, but not by much places like India are below the line need to rise, etc. Uh, but of course all that needs to be done in a decarbonized fashion. So, uh, uh, Game B is definitely not about. All right, we got ours. Uh, it's time to shut the door and uh, go build ourselves a nice little eco village someplace and fuck everybody else. Uh, we very much uh, realize that we have to take a global cons- uh, perspective, and it's going to mean building down in the West while building up elsewhere.
0: Yeah, that's really uh, interesting Jim, and something we've we've definitely been discussing here on the on the podcast. And I'm curious to ask. To what extent was the climate ecological crisis part of the initial impetus behind Game B? Uh, we've heard from other guests that essentially we would need to have average CO2 emissions per person globally at around two tons. And obviously that's, that's, that's a big ask for a lot of global north emitters. We, we, I mean, the average CO2 emission per person per capita in the US is around seven tons. But among the one percent, it's more like 70 tons um, exactly. So that's why I say curious. it's about,
3: it's about two thirds. It's about a two thirds reduction that we need. So seven to two approximately. Uh, I usually tend to do it in gigajoules, you know, from 300 gigajoules to about 90 gigajoules is probably about what the U.S. has to do. Uh, Europe, about 150 gigajoules to 90, something like that. Uh, and well, of course, a lot of that also, of course, depends on the technology, right? We have magic energy, right? Uh, you have as much energy as you want, but uh, within the cap- within the capital cost, capital cost capability to build the... Uh, non-carbon energy uh, by the end of the century, those numbers uh, seem reasonable. I will say at the very beginning, um, 2012, 2013, uh, climate per se was something we knew about and was part of our basket, but we were more, we were focused. And I would say we still are on the broader uh, basket of ecosystem services. uh, In addition, things like topsoil, uh, water usage, uh, etc. Though I would say that if we were uh, relaunching game B today from, or if it was fresh, we would probably, uh, as we are, uh, emphasizing climate more as it's the hammer that will get us if the other ones don't, uh, essentially. Uh, I will say in my original write-up in 2012, I actually wrote about pandemics as, uh, one of the things that might get us, uh, and, uh, turned out it didn't get us this time, but it gave us a nice little, uh, a nice little warning shot across the bow, uh, saying, "Hey, guys! Imagine if this thing uh, uh, were as, uh, uh, you know, as as deadly as Mars or something like that, and it's contagious, contagious as the Delta variant of uh, COVID. Uh, we'd have a serious, uh, serious case of hurt on our hands." So, uh, But hopefully we'll we'll learn something from it. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But uh, yeah, from the beginning, uh, the limits of Earth's carrying capacity has been central. But I would say since then, uh, as it's become more salient elsewhere, and as we've all done more reading and research, uh, climate's out there is kind of the end of the 21st century hammer. If we don't have that one fixed by then, it's going to get us.
0: Yeah, and of course, a lot of climate scientists are looking at the extreme weather events in the U.S. and Canada, and also having to sort of update their models and uh, think about, well, what might be the time frames here? And I guess there's, there's, there's some sober consideration there in terms of what the timeframes might be for shifting as Sam put it, you know, from a pre B space to a proto B to a game B, we might need to bring some of those timeframes forward somehow. Or maybe we can't though. Uh, you know, uh, We have to
3: be, you know, we have to live in reality. Uh, And, you know, for instance, uh, one of the U.S. presidential candidates uh, who I had actually supported in 2016, Bernie Sanders, in his uh, 2020 platform, uh, it was just ridiculous. He said, oh, we're going to have 100% renewable energy, 100% in the transportation and the energy generation sector by 2030. And I said, Bernie, you're an idiot, a clown. It couldn't be done. I went and talked to some of the experts that I knew of, and I know some of the top experts. And uh, you know, my first thing was, uh, well, maybe Stalin could have did, done it. And they, they said, no, Stalin couldn't have done it. Uh, the only one that might have been able to do it was Pol Pot. If you're prepared to kill you know, half the population and reduce your economy by 80% in five years, maybe you could do it. But uh, and so uh, part of what you know part of the, the way forward is going to be mitigation as well. You know we're not going to get under 1.5 uh, degrees C since the historical baseline. Uh, my own little noodling and simple models say two and a quarter, and there's going to be all kinds of shit that happens. On the other hand, humans are very adaptable, and uh, people will die and there will be wars, and bad stuff will happen, but probably not enough to crush civilization. Uh, but if we don't deal with it and we get you know, plus six degrees, plus five, uh, then that will crush civilization. Uh, so we have to, uh, yes, it would be nice if we could do it in 12 years, but let me tell you, we can't, not even close. Uh, if we can get to um, uh, effectively carbon uh, zero by 2060, that'd be nice. We can survive that.
0: Yeah, I've been doing quite a lot of climate governance research recently and it's been a steep learning curve on the climate science getting my head around the exponential function for example and getting my head around also of the co2 lag effect the fact that the co2 heating effect takes around two decades to actually come into in in, to actually have that impact because the ocean initially absorbs the heat and there's these these feedback effects that frankly I, i wonder whether a lot of people are aware of exactly how the climate system which is an incredibly complex system operates and it would be good perhaps to to raise the awareness around some of those some of those factors which defy human cognition if you will but speaking of experts jim i did want to um cue zoe in zoe's got a got a great question for you
2: i'd like to clarify i'm not an expert in anything um, <laughs> um, speaking of learning i guess there's lots of willful ignorance i think is what we kind of were just talking about um, Thinking about how academia and game B potentially interact, um, what do you think the role of universities might be in equipping young people with the tools to sort of face the challenges and the complexity that would come from needing to move from game A to game B, for example? Um, And how do you think universities are really doing? I mean, Uh,
3: well, they're doing nothing at the present time, hardly. Uh, You know, the whole university system is in a major way uh, and whether and it's so captured by its own uh, internal politics uh, and so many constituencies. Uh, I don't know how we're going to fix the universities. Uh, you know, Game B is assuming you're just going to have to build a complete parallel education system from scratch uh, and seduce the people over uh, over time. But it would be nice if the educational system uh, could uh, start really building in from the beginning a complexity lens on reality. Uh, right. Of all the things that are helpful uh, to get people to actually understand uh, all these things we've talked about, game theoretic race to the bottom and other uh, traps, uh, you know, exp- exponential growth. Uh, uh, you know, the nature of fat tailed distributions and social phenomena, uh, you know, the, the inability to really model the future very well. Uh, yeah, you can man- you can actually manage uh, model weather vastly better than you can manage culture, uh, the model culture, right? Because culture has uh, uh, strategic agents in it. And once you throw strategic agents into a simulation, uh, the, the trajectories that are possible go all over the place. You think we have problems managing uh, uh, weather models, which we do, uh, there's still not very complete with respect to clouds uh, they're not very uh, uh full with respect to uh some of the good news around climate which is that uh, increased co2 and increased temperature uh produce more water in the water cycle and co2 produces plant growth so we actually should see uh a, a negative feedback loop on more carbon being sequestered in the soil and in trees and etc uh but uh uh, a complexity lens would help, and one of the things that I keep pushing uh, is that a complexity lens, uh, uh, particularly with, with respect to social systems, means one needs to have epistemic uh, modesty. Uh, the ability to know the future uh, very far out uh, is just not there. Uh, you know, I would say that the you know the three things to teach kids are thinking in exponentials, which humans don't do naturally Uh, understanding the idea of fat tails uh, which is that uh, complex systems Large events happen much more often than Gaussian statistics uh, would indicate. Uh, And the third is epistemic uh, modesty, in that when you you make changes in a complex system, uh, the results are often unanticipated and unanticipatable. And so the only really reasonable way to uh, move forward is in tight loops of theory, experiment, theory, experiment, uh, with relatively small steps along the way.
2: Great, That's that's a lot to to chew on. I guess a little follow up would be also in terms of systems thinking education, um, maybe would we benefit from also incorporating just caring about other humans in education and in these complexity uh, complexity lenses? Because, I mean, did we ever really incorporate that in education that we should care what happens to other people? Because it feels like that is definitely something that might be lacking from all just generalized mainstream education.
3: And, of course, uh, there's a good reason, probably, in that we evolved in hunter-gatherer bands, forager bands of, you know, 50 to 150 people. In fact, I'm having Robin Dunbar on my podcast next month, which will be fun. We'll talk about the Dun- Dunbar number. And uh, uh, and so we were not evolved uh, to worry about 10 billion people, right? Uh, in fact, uh, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, uh, you know, since maybe – 1625, that we've been even tended to strongly identify ourselves with a nation state. Uh, more, more often, it was a smaller ethnic group of people who spoke a, uh, a common language and had some common traditions. You know, France had 11 languages in a, in 1000 a, a, a AD, right? And it was at least 11 uh, ethnicities in France, uh, and, and since 1625, and, uh, you know, the era of absolute kings and such now they got one language basically and, and one country so uh you know then making the next loop uh, the next step to consider humanity as a whole is really a hard step and whether that's uh, the job for education or whether that's the job for morality for values and virtues i think an interesting question uh you know we believe that those things must be cooked into game b as our uh uh, our virtues, our values, and our norms. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, I think our ethical system is kind of a hybrid between Aristotelian uh, virtue uh, uh, ethics and utilitarian ethics, uh, essentially at the same time. And then, uh, you know, with some additions of opening the scope uh, so that we have to include everybody, nobody gets left behind. We can't be a lifeboat uh, philosophy, which uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, some people who are in this, uh, who understand the problem, say, "All right, uh, it's just impossible." You know, we'll all move to New Zealand. All of us billionaires, and we'll fortify the place, and that'll be that. We certainly don't believe that in the game B world. But I'm not sure that uh, it's not obvious to me that ethics uh, is something that uh, universities ought to be teaching. That ought to be done in the community.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, we had Forrest Landry on the show. Uh, Few months ago, and we discussed with him how ethics is integral to a complexity understanding of our reality. That there is no view from nowhere; that we that we are all embedded in this kind of ecological interdependency, uh, and we need to sort of really absorb that insight and understand the implications. And I know that you've said that uh, the great value of complexity science is that it's about how things work and and what makes things real. And we hear a lot about complexity in the Game B space. We hear a lot of concepts from complexity science, such as uh, the adjacent possible, basins of attraction, uh, attractors. I mean, how do these conceptual tools apply to the task of building a, a social operating system to replace Game A? And Perhaps also keeping in mind those who are new to complexity science or indeed those who are resistance. Um, I can remember co- a colleague recently saying in a paper, you know, that complexity is a quote, festival of bad metaphors. I mean, how do we overcome that kind of resistance? What is the gateway to thinking in complexity terms? Uh, for me, it was uh, doing agent-based modeling.
3: Uh, and, uh, and simulations, right? Which is very, very interesting. You build an agent-based model and so-called emergence happens, uh, which is that things that you don't expect to happen, happen. Things that are uh, sort of fu- fundamentally unpredictable from uh, lower level phenomena. And of course, the classic example of emergence is life, right? Uh, you start with the laws of physics and you have uh, atoms and yet molecules from chemistry. Uh, it was quite a stretch to go from chemistry to organic chemistry, right? Very simple life like bacteria, uh, and archaea. Uh, and then it was another giant leap to go to, uh, uh the, uh, uh, eukaryotic cells, which, uh, were a, a huge leap where we started having mitochondria and then, um, chloroplasts, et cetera, that made the cells much more energetic and capable of doing much more. And another another leap to multicellularity, and then an explosion, the Cambrian explosion. So these are classic examples of emergence. And uh, you can see some of this in li- more limited ways in simulations. Uh, so I suppose simulations on one side and evolution on the other. The evolutionary lens is something that everybody at the Santa Fe Institute uses to a greater or, le- uh, or lesser degree. Uh you know, everything came from something simpler in the past. It's fair to say I've done some very interesting podcasts recently on the evolution of technology we had uh, Brian Arthur on uh, actually, he won't be, we're actually going to publish it on Wednesday uh, on his book on tech, the nature of technology. We had Matt Ridley on recently on his uh, 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 book about innovation, et cetera. And one of the points they both make is that everything comes from something simpler uh, and, uh, over time uh, as we as they become more complex uh, we get emergent phenomena and so we use this a lot when we think about what what interventions do we actually ought to do to bring game b into being right uh, and we, compl- we uh, contrast Complexity with complicatedness, you know, something like the U.S. Army. It's complicated. It's a rigid structure, top-down orders follow. You know, uh, uh, from a a big American corporation like General Motors or something. Same way, Uh, you know, our sense, uh, the the art and science of building game B enterprises and organizations is through self-organization, using network communications, uh, using ideas around signaling and membranes, et cetera, uh, that are more fluid uh, than these uh, complicated structures, which we keep building, making them more and more complicated uh, uh, to deal with the side effects of what's inherently a complex world.
1: Um, Jim, we were talking before the podcast about uh, your kind of role within social media and, uh, you know, Facebook and and Twitter. And say for, uh, say, for example, we we succeed and we survive and we're looking back 300 years at the early beginnings of, of Game B, a bit like we might learn about Enlightenment now and the kind of the material conditions, the societal conditions that brought about the thinking of Enlightenment. What would you say the role of tech is in... The kind of conditions that bring about game B thinking is there is there a link between tech and its abundance and the global phenomena that it is and game gotcha. B and how that might be able to manifest?
3: Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. And actually, you say put it into the emergence of the modern or the Enlightenment uh, in the in the same way that uh, you know you know, science, democracy, and fractional reserve banking were some of the prerequisites for, uh, uh, game a, uh, tech is a prerequisite for game B, uh, in, in several ways, right? One is, uh, you know, tech and also by the way, uh, highly efficient manufacturing is also a prerequisite for game, uh, game B, uh, in that, uh, both of them enable, uh, uh, non-rivalrous economics, uh, which is that, uh, Uh, You know, for the audience, uh, one of the things we talk about from the very beginning of Game B uh, is the distinction between rivalrous economics and non-rivalrous economics. Uh, An example of rivalrous economics is a ham sandwich. Either you eat it or I eat it. Right? We can't both eat it. So it's a rivalry. Who gets to eat the ham sandwich? Well, on the other, on the another, a perfect example of a non-rivalrous good is an MP3 file of somebody's favorite uh, music. Uh, the incremental cost these days, because of tech, to copy that is almost zero. Uh, so, if we really want to maximize human utility, uh, everyone who wants that MP3 ought to be able to have it. We ought not have gateways like intellectual property and all that sort of stuff. And of course, that then. Uh, leads to a big question about how do you compensate creators to give them incentives to create, et cetera. How do you have a culture of creation uh, where people aren't paid royalties, for instance? And we've done quite a bit of work on that. Uh, And so tech enables uh, uh, non-rivalrous economics. And should we make some additional big moves in tech, say around self-assembling nanotechnology, uh, the number of goods that will become closer to being non-rivalrous versus rivalrous uh, will increase. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, we talked about fractional reserve banking and this inner loop of money on money return that is driving game a over the cliff, uh, we need something. We need technology to have other signaling modalities to coordinate cooperation. Uh, and truthfully, I can't tell you what those are yet. This is uh, work still in progress. Obviously, we're in, we look at some of the crypto projects. Though most of those are uh, Game A on steroids. Tell you the truth, uh, there are some projects uh, that are uh, more interesting, like. Uh, uh, Holo coin is an interesting project. A uh, few others. Uh, uh, I personally don't believe that the classic uh, Bitcoin tree of uh, crypto is probably what we're looking for, uh, but some form of uh, social signaling to coordinate all the things that we use money for today is going to be necessary. And those would not really be very feasible without our, uh, our networked world. So yes, I do believe when that graduate student is working on his thesis on how, where the hell a Game B come from, uh, one of the things they'll enumerate as the takeoff prerequisites uh, was a uh, high-tech world. Game B would have made no sense in 1700, just as as Game A would have made no sense in 5000 B.C.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and just to follow on that graduate student in a couple of hundred years writing their thesis on the origins of Game B, say if we read Team for a moment, Game B, and what are some of the – I don't know if you've modeled on this, but the kind of potential pitfalls of Game B as it potentially expands – um, as often we've seen in the history tells us that good ideas once they expand, can often kind of mutate into quite horrible ideas.
3: Yeah, that's certainly possible. And because we do have an evolutionary lens, uh, we know that that possibility exists and we can't give a definitive answer. Uh, However, we do have some, uh, shall we say, prophylactics. Uh, One of the ones uh, that we talk about a fair amount uh, is that Game A, because of its nature of command and control and power, Uh, And the fact that it no longer has any uh, filtering mechanisms uh, attracts sociopaths at a high rate. Uh, You know, I was a public company CEO and a C-level executive and a multi-billion dollar multinational and did work on Wall Street and worked in the U.S. White House when I was very young. And my own estimate is at least 10 percent of C-level executives and major American corporations are sociopaths. In finance, it's probably 30%. Uh, And if we then talk about the uh, game theoretical race to the bottom trap, uh, even 10% sociopaths is probably enough to tip the whole system into a sociopathic game. Uh, And so one of the things we uh, uh, focus a lot on in thinking about our Game B institutions is how do we make damn sure that we keep sociopaths away from the levers of power? Uh, and how exactly we do that, I don't know. But it's certainly one of the design features that that we're going to have to have. Uh, and uh, I think it was Daniel actually pointed out uh, that uh, sociopaths may actually be useful. It maybe be useful to have 1% sociopaths for war fighting and things of that sort. Uh, but uh, you do, absolutely do not want them anywhere near the institutional levers of power. And uh, late stage game A, you know, at least since 19... 19- 70 or thereabouts has opened the floodgates uh, to sociopaths uh, having l- access to the levers of power. Uh, so that would be one thing. Uh, the other one, uh, and this goes back to the very early pre game B thinking, even, is uh, radical transparency. Uh, the, uh, you know, say Wall Street, uh, the main profit. Uh, engine in Wall Street is opacity. As it turns out, let's make the products as confusing as possible, so no one can possibly understand them except us. Uh, and we will, you know, fool fool. We will uh, trick various fools. We'll make lots of money. Uh, our ideas around, uh, you know, a next generation finance are radical transparency and uh, Bitcoin-style crypto had would have had that opportunity, except for they made the wrong. Uh, move, of moving towards anonymity or at least pseudo anonymity. If you had the high trackability of uh, blockchain, but with uh, well-fashioned, stable identity, uh, and also one of my own favorite reforms, which is to have a limit uh, that no stack of abstract entities could be more than five levels deep. So that uh, any entity, a trust, a uh, a uh, uh, limited liability corporation, a partnership, a corporation, or, or the game B equivalent must within five lengths end up on a human. And that, and the track must be uh, transparent. Uh, we believe will help a lot. Um, of course, there's a whole bunch of institutional reforms around governance that need to be done. Uh, you know, late stage game A is uh, frankly, uh, probably always game A, but particularly since in 1975, uh, money has captured politics uh, pretty much across the world. Uh, Money or something very similar to money. Uh, And so we have to make sure that that doesn't happen. And again, uh, tech platforms give us some opportunities to do that. Uh, One of the ideas I put forth in the very earliest games, uh, days of game B, uh, was that uh, to the degree that we have elections, which I think we're Becoming less and less interested in elections, actually, as a means of governance. But the degree we do have elections, imagine we still had them, uh, we could uh, do campaign finance. Uh, using a modern uh, money-like entity and have special money that's uh, political speech money so that every person got the equivalent of $100 or pounds or euros a year, and only that money could be used for uh, electioneering or issue advocacy, Uh, and that there were then special uh, entities set up who were able to Uh, transform, let's call it blue money or political money into regular money. Uh, And that transformation would be a matter of public record and radically transparent. Uh, And uh, I think if we did things like that, uh, you'd have a, a you know a fairly good chance of avoiding some of the capture modes uh, that we have seen in Game A, uh, but I will tell you because uh, it was a very good question, and we know that it is possible Game A could uh, Game B could lead to a worse nightmare than Game A. Right? Uh, the Marxist Leninists probably some of them at least thought they were doing sincerely good work for the world. Wrong guys, and maybe we are too uh but at least we're aware of it and i think we we understand the dynamics we understand uh you know tendency towards uh, game theoretic uh Uh, traps we understand we understand capture uh, and we understand at least some degree the dangers of sociopaths and so we have to build in uh uh, brett weinstein uh, an evolutionary scientist very smart guy has been involved in game b from the very beginning continues to always stress this that uh, we have to build an immune system into game b uh to minimize the chances of it going
0: off in a bad direction can't guarantee it though yeah, so I'd like to pick up on that, Jim. So, <clears throat> in a way, what we're talking about is well, what what is the design space that uh, Game B would operate in? What would it look like? How do we design a space which protects Game B integrity? And you set out a range of sort of general principles that should guide proto including that they be non hierarchical, that they be network centric, that they be long term uh, meta stable. And you brought up the example just then of the military as an example of a complicated hierarchical structure. And I guess Game B is kind of counterposed to that that kind of arrangement. But I'd like to push a bit more. I mean, is Game B itself, is it a, a, a prototype organization or plan for different scales of organization up to the civilizational level? Or is it meant to be sort of, non-tangible is it not meant to prescribe that kind of detailed orientation is it not meant to prescribe forms of organizational hierarchy uh is is that lack of prescription intentional or could that actually be a problem down the Uh, road i would say we uh don't know enough
3: yet but we do believe that uh in the at the biggest picture game b will have to have uh Uh, communications and signaling modalities up the whole stack. Uh, But that uh, we should think of the stack as rather than being a a rigid set of uh, hierarchies should be essentially fractally designed and where it will have different depths in different areas. Uh, But we also think that if we do game B right, the game B principles ought to more or less apply at every level. So for instance, uh, something that's sort of vaguely analogous to a nation state uh uh, we would argue is probably a bit smaller than our current big nation states, but maybe we're wrong. Uh, you know, would still have to operate under radical transparency, for instance, and uh, and have anti-sociopath filters, and uh, you know, generally approximate equality of economic outcomes for people. Maybe not not exact, maybe a factor of ten, but certainly not the current uh, factor of uh, a million. Uh, and uh, so we think whatever set of principles we finally perfect for at the proto B level will also apply uh, to the higher levels as well, which of course makes the design question uh, considerably more tricky.
0: I also wanted to pick up on you made that distinction between complicated and complex. And I would certainly refer refer our, our audience to your excellent podcast with Dave Snowden on that distinction. And I was curious to ask, I mean, how does that distinction relate to this transition? We have a prototype Game B emerging from within a legacy Game A sort of structural context. So one imagines that in some respects, Game B is expected to be parasitic on Game A. And I think you said elsewhere... It's explicitly parasitic. Yeah. Okay. So, and you said elsewhere that the Achilles heel of game A is that it does not understand complexity. So given that game A does seem to hold all of the cards, it does seem to be incredibly powerful in the current zeitgeist. Does that give us reason to be optimistic and and why?
3: Uh, well, I would say it's optimistic, but with a question mark. You asked, you know, what are some more failure modes? Uh, one that we've identified as uh, an outstanding piece of work, which absolutely needs to be done, and if we don't succeed, we will probably fail, is to design a uh series of operating systems for entities. Let's think, think of them as like businesses. We call them game B ventures. Uh, and they might use, uh, you know, some of the, some existing test, uh, game B ish operating systems or things like sociocracy or holocracy. Uh, and there's, there's some others, uh, Forrest Landry's actually, uh, got an early, uh, early bit of work on one, uh, where we could, we think create ways that, uh, Co- collaborative and cooperative enterprises that do actual work in the world uh, could be more efficacious and could outcompete their game a alternatives using uh, a new internal operating system that operates at the level of what we you could think of as an enterprise uh, and if we cannot do that the prospects of uh, game B successfully parasitizing Game A uh, co- go down substantially. There are some other routes to get there, but uh, that's uh, that's a key right there. Can we and we, as we say in some of the Game uh, B literature, can we actively outcompete Game A uh, in at least some important economic uh, categories using Game B approaches? And if we can, that is the uh, takeoff mechanism uh, to cause Game B to grow quite rapidly by actively and explicitly parasitizing uh game a and at the same time we have another little trick that we have uh which is as we talked about earlier it's really important uh for long-term metastability of a game b global civilization that we substantially cut uh our consumption of stuff and energy and one of the interesting side effects about that is that it means that our cost of living in game A terms will be very very much reduced, which means, and if we can be as productive or more productive in game A terms, uh, that means our savings rates will be crazy. We might have internal savings rates on the order of 50%. Uh, and if you run the numbers on if you then reinvest that savings rate in building more game B, uh, uh, the uh, the takeoff is pretty pretty amazing, Uh uh, over time. And so I think that's another uh, little and uh, little uh, noted uh, part of our competitive dynamic, but actually costs, let's say half as uh, uh, what it, uh, to have a good quality of life in game B as it does in game A. And yet your uh, economic earning capacity through a game B venture is more or less equal or even better to what it is in game A that generates a staggering cash flow to, uh, to build game B from.
0: I'd like to flag that in some of your writings, you've laid out very practical, pragmatic sort of stepping stones to what a proto B, prototype Game B community might look like, what it might invest its time in doing, how it might actually cultivate a different way of being in the world, but not necessarily separate to the world. Uh, And I think that's incredibly helpful. And I, I, I say that because often one finds perhaps in these conversations that there's a bit of a polarization between, say, the tech utopians to sort of take the Stephen Pinker line and those who are more you know, into the catastrophe, a bit more of a sort of doom, doomer kind of perspective, who would say or respond, Well, that's, that all sounds great, but, you know, it's, it's really not realistic. I mean, there's sort of this, this default into despair sometimes. And I, I would just note that you're not someone who's afraid to get their hands dirty in the cut and thrust of business and indeed politics. One of the early initiatives that you were leading on was launching a political party, the, the Emancipation Party, focused on severing this link between politics and money. But I'm wondering, uh, given that you have kind of it seems shelved that particular part of the Game B manifesto for the time being, um, how, where would you apply, or where would you suggest people apply their energy who want to tr- start really um, pushing, uh, uh, making some concerted effort in this direction in, in a very practical fashion, in the short term.
3: Uh, well, as we laid out in the uh, in my paper, a journey to Game B. Uh, Uh, I suggest that people start in a pre-B mindset, which is, uh, you know, start getting yourself ready to participate in some of the next phases we'll talk about briefly. Uh, You know, keep your expenditures under control. Don't, be captured by advertising, right? If you got a fancy car, get rid of it, right? Uh, if you got to really, you know, do not aspire to a uh, gigantic house in a fancy suburb, right? It's, uh, it's a trap, people. Uh, you know, don't uh, feel that you need to you know have a diamond ring for engagement what the fuck's that all about right uh, get rid of all that shit. get it out of your head uh, you know learn some real useful skills uh, learn how to do some carpentry electrician plumbing uh, farming get yourself in some reasonable physical shape of course I say that and I'm not necessarily the best example on that one but oh well uh, we does our best uh, and uh, uh, you know etc and so try to deprogram oneself you pay off all the debts that you have. Do not incur any debts. Right, debt is poison. You don't want your debts following you into Game B, Uh, and uh, and just get yourself uh, ready. And then to get ready for what Uh, the things that we can do right now are proto bees, which are on the ground residential communities uh, of people who want to live in a more Game B way. uh, That. That emphasizes uh, community and conviviality and uh, good human living. Uh, particularly, I'm interested in. Some of the other people uh, are too. Uh, communities that are really great for raising children. If you're, you know, 25 to 35 with a couple of kids, middle class. Or even upper working class jobs. Uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to live really well at that time of your life with lots of people to help you with child care, with good education, with healthy food grown right on the on the property, uh, et cetera. So, uh, two game, two proto bees have already bought their land. Uh, there's at least two more, uh, that will probably do so soon. Uh, and next year really interesting to see how many, uh, proto bees emerge. And of course you start small, but if we can get an exponential growth going, uh, we can eventually have, uh, many of these, many, many, many of these things. Uh, and then the other side is, uh, game B ventures, which, uh, uh, can be launched by people who are not part of game B communities, but these are, uh, you know, nominally at least uh, to the outside world for profit businesses uh, that would be owned by their employees and or by a proto B. We do think that uh, proto B's and alliances of proto B's because they'll have high savings rates uh, will have the ability to fund um, uh, Game B ventures and have some part of the cash flows that come back from those Game B ventures uh, to help, you know, fund their their Proto-Bs as well as provide uh, work for people on the Proto-Bs, et cetera. So those are the two next steps. And as you say, very tangible, but there are things we have to work out. You know, the governance methods, uh, both for the Proto-B communities and for the uh, Game B ventures, you know, we have some ideas, we have some things off the shelves so we could try, but those things have to be perfected over the next few years. Uh, and we really do, they really do have to work. Uh, and though, again, as I said, epistemic modesty. Um, uh, do I think that the current ideas we have will all work? No. Uh, but I think that they're not sufficiently idiotic that they, that you can't at least get started. And then you say, all right, well, this sort of seemed like a good idea, but it didn't quite work. So we need to adjust this. Right. Uh, You know, whether it's a capital structure whether it's management structures, uh, uh, whether it's uh, governance architectures, is liquid democracy a good idea? I've done a lot of thinking about it. I think it could be, uh, but it hasn't been tried at sufficient scale to uh, sign off on it. So let's say a a proto B decides to use liquid democracy and finds it sort of works, but, has this problem so we tweak it uh, and the other imp- really important thing that we emphasize and uh, we've done a more more work on the proto b side than the venture side though that's going to change next year uh, is that we don't want all the proto bees to be using exactly the same operating system uh, because we don't we're not sure that we have the answers in fact i'm sure we don't but uh, uh, that we should think of proto bees as a exploration of high dimensional design space uh, for communities to produce uh, a very good human quality of life uh, but at a much lower uh, uh, economic cost than the game A equivalent in terms of quality of life and, most importantly, within the carrying capacity of our ecosystem services. And, by the way, uh, these proto bees are not in isolation. They're in uh, horizontal communications uh, with each other. And so proto-B in Oregon, USA, discovers uh, some trick uh, for how to do something and it exchanges it across the whole game v community. And the proto B in Portugal says, Oh, that's a good idea. We'll adopt that and insert it into, uh, uh, into our local operating system. And then though, the one over in Italy says, Oh, there's guys in Portugal, we know them. Uh, they tried this thing from Oregon. It's working. We're going to do it too. Right. Uh, and so we see this, this is where the, uh, again, the technology is essential. We had to do this by, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it called? The community of letters uh, back in the early uh, 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 18th century. Uh, it wouldn't be anywhere near fast enough, but the fact that we can do it electronically in video with zoom meetings and everything else means that horizontal communications across the various parts of the uh, game B world can happen at very high speed.
0: Yeah, I really like that. Uh, it makes me sort of think game B is really about experimenting locally, but, but making it portable I think that raises a really crucial question around scale and boundaries, which is one which preoccupies me and my colleagues a lot. I mean, circling back to Zoe's question on on cultivating an ethical care. I mean, at, w- at what level should we be seeking to solve problems? Is game B really a civilizational level design task, or on much more pragmatic grounds, should it focus at at the smaller scale, perhaps under the Dunbar number? So, you know. That's a good question. And, uh, well, we don't know for sure.
3: We do believe that to accomplish our goals, we do have to find a way to scale to at least the civilization level uh, and maybe to the global level. Uh, and, but we do think that the emphasis has to come from a bottom up perspective rather than a top down, at least until we proved a lot more than we have today. Uh, you know, if you, if you made some game B person, the dictator of the world and said, build game B right now, top down, uh, I imagine it'd be a, it would turn out to be quite a shit show and not something I'd recommend, even if I was the guy, God damn it. Right. Uh, that we need to try this stuff. And grow it up. Uh, but we do think that it scales. You know, for instance, uh, Jordan Hall's concept of the civium, uh, which is a, uh, a network of a bunch of proto bees uh, that operate together under a collective ownership. They all own each other, essentially. Or own, it's all one uh, legal entity, if you want to use game a terminology and one shared economy uh, is, is one uh, definite possibility. It's also possible that the proto bees uh, are autonomous, but they have, uh, you know, rapid signaling and sharing. They have their own currency, perhaps their own e- own uh, internal trading systems, uh, et cetera, that preferentially uh, make it advantageous for them to uh, trade with each other and to, you know, uh, to, uh, uh you know, provide the things that the others don't. Because one of the things we learned from Adam Smith of nobody else is that specialization is important, right? You're not going to get uh, tolerable economic efficiency without some level of specialization. So different proto B's are, are going to focus on different things. <coughs> so there'll be neat. There'll be a need to have plenty of trade, uh, even in the game B world, even though we are going to focus on shorter range trade, um, we do think that the idea of intercontinental of sending plastic toys around the world is probably not a good idea in terms of, uh, keeping our energy burned down and preserving our ecosystem services. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, the idea that we're going to, re- uh, retreat to the medieval village where everything you need is made within three miles of you uh, I think is also highly unrealistic so we do see some self-assembly at higher and higher levels coming from uh, the bottom up Uh, and at some point they'll uh, you'll have to be some governance whether we'll capture current political systems or we'll just build alternatives Uh, is hard to say uh, but I expect that uh, we'll, solve, we'll try to solve the problem up to at least, I think I said in that turning uh, to Game B paper, at least to the level of 500 million people, something like that.
0: Well, it suddenly sounds like a wild adventure. Yeah, it keeps me busy. keeps me off the streets.
3: <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it seems absurdly ambitious, but I've yet to find the fatal flaw why it couldn't be done. And as you said, I'm a very practical guy, right? I am. Uh, I build build things, right? I'm a farmer. I, uh, uh, you know, if I thought this was just an idiot bunch of hippies with some, uh, you know, I some uh, ideas that would will never work, I would have long since said hell with it. Uh, but I've yet to find the fatal flaw. In fact, in, in my business world, one of my favorite talks I gave is called Shoot the Puppy. And the idea is uh, from the, uh, from idea to exit in a venture, you should be prepared to shoot the puppy if uh, it does not uh, does not work. And so far, we have not shot the Game B puppy. Uh, you know, we haven't answered all the questions, uh, but it's just like a venture has not Uh, answered all its questions uh, in its early stages. And Game B is still very early, right? Uh, We don't even have a single fully operational Proto-B. You know, when we have 100 Proto-Bs and a a few hundred Proto-B ventures, Game B ventures, uh, then we may find the fatal flaw in it. On the other hand, I don't think so. It smells right to me uh, that this uh, idea of uh, network centricity, decentralization, self-organization, and metastability are the big four uh that if we steer by those uh we could should can be able to build a, a new uh worldwide or at least civilization level operating system uh which we can uh, survive in as humanity for the long term and then go see uh, see what our human destiny is you know uh personally i want us to go explore the universe uh but uh, uh I think we'll do, we should not be spending big expenditures on that until we figured out how to live stably on our planet for tens of thousands of years.
0: One thing at a time. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, Jim. I'm conscious of time. I think we're rolling to the close. I'd like to just hand over to Zoe for the final question.
2: So sort of looking to the future and the younger generations um, who maybe are a little bit more cynical about the future and who definitely feel like they've had their future prospects sort of uh, worsened, um, not least by COVID and all of the accumulating challenges that it poses and that it lays bare. What would you say to those younger generations who maybe might be harder to convince and who would think that this is an idea where you would have to shoot the puppy or that it's all, you know, that they don't even have they can't even aspire to having a planet to live on that would be livable um, and who just don't see the point of even trying anything. Cause I feel right. like that's sort of prevalent amongst younger generations. Um, at least in conversations I've had with people my age and younger than me.
3: Frankly, those people won't be game B players in the beginning, right? Uh, people who have reached the level of cynicism and despair, sorry. Um, uh, but we do have an answer for them, which is we'll show them. Right. Uh, and let's say, you're let's say you're right. 90% of, uh, young folks fall. I doubt it's anywhere near that high. In, in fact, currently in the game B world, uh, millennials are without a doubt the biggest chunk, right? They're, uh, millennials are the most, uh, early, younger gen Xers. And now zoomers are starting to join up. Uh, so there's plenty of, them. Maybe it's only 10%. So that's still a whole bunch of people. Uh, we then build, few thousand proto bees, right? Come visit one, come live on one for a while. Right. Uh, cause we're going to have, uh, you know, temp space, uh, you know, kind of the equivalent of Airbnb or, uh, uh, workspace work on our organic farm, et cetera. And, uh, People, so I don't know why people object to this word, but I use it. I like it, is that game B will seduce people out of game A, right? I don't know what's wrong with seduce. Seems like a perfectly reasonable word to me, but uh, some people object to it. Oh, well, fuck them. Uh, you know, uh, these uh, cynical uh, millennials and Zoomers, uh, you know, come see game B, hang out for a couple of weeks. Would you rather go back to the rat race as it is? Or would you rather, uh, you know, come and live in a place where we actually are living on 90- Uh, gigajoules per person per year uh and we actually are uh living on uh, a sustainable diet that won't deplete the soil and uh, won't require us to kill off the remaining wildlife on our planet and over time uh you know people are are convinced by reality you know uh if i had if i was young and grew up in the shit show we have today i'd probably be a cynical motherfucker too uh but uh uh, you know, once we've actually shown that this is possible, and there's always a group that's willing to try, and, and uh, frankly, as I say, the the biggest group today in our, in Game B is millennials because they feel the biggest need. Uh, then we'll 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 show people. And the same, frankly, it's the same way the West beat. the the Marxist-Leninists, right? Uh, Eventually, uh, it just became so obvious that the way of life in the West was so much better than under Marxist-Leninism, people people just threw up their hands and said, hell with it. Uh, And uh, and that's at least uh, a hopeful analogy for how we think Game B will eventually overcome that cynicism and seduce people over to Game B.
2: That certainly gives me a lot of hope. Thank you very much.
0: Well, there's an invitation that you can't refuse, I'd say. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll obviously be watching the game sp- base, B space with a lot of interest, and maybe we're already in some modest fashion undertaking some kind of proto-B conversation here as well. I think we'd kind of like to think so. Um, so we really appreciate your collaboration in, in this project. Yeah, and I'd like to thank you guys for being so well-prepared. Uh, you've clearly done your thinking,
3: your research, and it's uh, it's always a joy to uh, talk with folks that ask good questions, not just general vague ones. And for people out there that want to get in touch, as we say, find the others, uh, we have uh, our own Game B community at game-b.org. Uh, it's currently not open to the general public, but we, ha- we have some filtering questions. And I want to ask you where you heard about about it say you heard heard about it from jim Rudd himself that miserable asshole right uh or just mention this uh this show and our uh, our mods uh, will let you in and you can meet the other uh several thousand people in the uh, in the game b space and perhaps find somebody near you to get together with and form a proto b or uh, become part of a game b venture so that's game-b.org see you there
0: Yep. You'll find me there too. So yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Jim. And also do tune into the the Jim Rutt Show. It's always a a really, really worthwhile, fascinating listen. So yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks for the plug and thanks for a good conversation. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Global Governance Futures to get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future zoom calls workshops and events and more check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global governance and if you like this content please do leave us a comment and subscribe until next time